You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. In today's show, we're discussing conversion therapy and ex-LGBTQ ministries with the director of the acclaimed Netflix documentary, Pray Away. What happens when people go to religious organizations that promise to help them overcome their sexuality or gender identity? Why are ex-LGBTQ ministries still prominent today? And what can be done to put an end to conversion therapy for good? Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. I'm very excited to be chatting today with two exceptional guests. First, we are joined by Christine Stalakis, director of the critically acclaimed documentary, Pray Away, streaming now on Netflix. And we're joined by Dr. Lynn Gerber, author of the book, Seeking the Straight and Narrow, Weight Loss and Sexual Reorientation in Evangelical America. You can read about Christine's documentary, Pray Away, in the Revealer article by Mihi Kim court called Evangelical Women Leaders as LGBTQ Allies, and you can read Lynn Gerber's excellent Revealer article, AIDS and the Blessings of Stain, both at therevealer.org. Hi, Christine and Lynn. I'm thrilled to have both of you here to discuss Christine's important documentary, Pray Away, and to be able to discuss this world of conversion therapy and ex-LGBTQ ministries that remains active today. So, Christine, let me start with you. First, congratulations on making such an excellent film. Can you tell us why you wanted to make a documentary about the history and present-day situation of conversion therapy and what is often called ex-gay ministries? Yes, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. I'm truly delighted to be here. Um, So I got into the topic of conversion therapy because my uncle went through conversion therapy when he came out as trans as a child. Um, Mm. And he went through conversion therapy during a time that I often say, uh, where every therapist was essentially a conversion therapist. So he went to, you know, a licensed psychotherapist who put him through conversion therapy, which was mainstream practice at the time, you know, and didn't affirm his gender, of course, at all, and said, put him on antidepressants as a child and, and said that he had a mental health issue. And that was that. And that caused a lifetime of real mental health issues. He suffered from depression and anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, um, suicidality, Mm. drug abuse, alcohol abuse. I mean, just a whole gamut of things that I've learned are quite common for people who go through some type of conversion therapy. And he passed away unexpectedly right before I went to film school. For me in my childhood, he lived about 20 minutes away from where I grew up Mm. for the first Mm -hmm. half of my childhood in upstate New York. And he was my babysitter after school. He was one of my best friends. He was just, he had a really great 10 years of, of sobriety where he was one of my main caretakers. Mm-hmm. So he, I really loved him and just thought he was a really special person. And as an adult, when I came to understood everything he'd gone through when he was younger and also saw his mental health deteriorate again in the later half of his life, I became very interested in why. And, and very quickly I realized, oh, he'd had this horrible experience in conversion therapy. Um, so I started doing research And when I started doing research, I did it with my filmmaker hat on, Mm -hmm. thinking what would be the best subject for a documentary about this topic um, from my point of view. And the thing I found that that really opened my eyes to why he fervently believed that change was possible for so long is that the vast majority of conversion therapy organizations are actually run by LGBTQ people who say that they have changed themselves. And it was that claim that helped me understand why he was not affirming his entire life, while he, why he sought change his entire life and why he never accepted himself his entire life. And that had became the subject of Pray Away and kind of the heartbeat of Pray Away is the internalized homophobia and transphobia of this movement that motivates people to hurt their own community. That you know translates into what Pray Away became about, which was an inside look at the conversion therapy uh, world 
through what was the largest conversion therapy organization in the world, Exodus International. And we did that um, kind of exploration through the point of view mostly of leadership. And then we weaved in the story of a survivor of conversion therapy, as well as a current conversion therapy leader mm -hmm. from a different organization to show that the movement continues into today. Thank you for that. So, Lynn, let me bring you in since you've written a great book where you spent quite a bit of time among a large ex-gay Christian organization. Viewers learn at the end of Pray Away that more than 700,000 Americans have gone through some form of conversion therapy, which is a really staggering number. 700,000 people who have worked with religious leaders, counselors, and often a combination of both to try to change their sexuality or gender identity. As Christine just mentioned, many such people in the documentary use the language of survivors to describe themselves. So, Lynn, will you talk about what types of things people go through or have gone through in the process to try to change their sexuality? When people go to a conversion therapy organization or minister or counselor, what is some of that experience like? Can you paint a bit of a picture for us of what people encounter? Sure. I'm so excited to be here, and I'm particularly grateful to Christine and Pray Away for giving me this chance to revisit research that I did in the early aughts. A lot has changed in that time, but I learned from the film that a lot, in fact, hasn't changed. It's been a really great opportunity to do that. When I was studying the ex-gay movement, it was structured around two poles or two kind of points on a spectrum, the religious end of the spectrum and the therapeutic end of the spectrum. And most ex-gay ministries or ex-gay programs were some kind of blend of the two. Things that looked very religious, like worship services, like uh, spiritual practices, like mm. altar calls, that kind of thing. And things that looked very therapeutic, like going to a counselor or reading a book or being in a group. And people who enter the ex-gay world enter often through one of those poles or another, and it looks kind of different depending on which side you sort of come in through. Hmm. So if you kind of come in through the therapeutic side of things, it can look a lot like other kinds of therapy or other kinds of therapeutic culture things. You might make an appointment with a counselor and have weekly sessions with that person, sort of exploring your feelings or your emotions. You might join a small support group, maybe one that's in your church because you belong to a church that wants to present itself as being open to what they would call people struggling with same-sex desires, also mm. known as LGBTQ people. Or you may sign up with a group in an organization, an office building across town, because the thought of actually coming out as somebody, even as a struggler in your own church, is just too scary an environment. Mm. But once you get there, it looks like a therapeutic culture thing, sitting around talking about your feelings. And once you enter that therapeutic world, there's also a sort of cultural world of speakers and writers and books and probably now YouTube channels and that kind of thing that introduce you to the sort of mindset of conversion therapy, why they think homosexuality develops, what they think will help you change it, hmm. stories that might be experienced as inspirational, that of people saying that they have allegedly changed. And for some people, they really build a whole life in this therapeutic world. For people who come in from the more religious side, the efforts at change are sort of more immediate. They're sort of more of a one-off. They happen in religious experiences. And they're experiences where God or spirit is directly evoked for the purposes of effecting kind of an immediate change. Another word for this kind of practice is a deliverance practice, the idea that God will come into your body and deliver you from homosexuality either because homosexuality is a sin and God will, in his God's godly way, deliver you from it, or God, with the assistance of a minister or a practitioner, will exercise a demon, if that's the theological understanding. Hmm. But it's a very sort of emotionally cathartic religious experience. It's often constructed as a one-off experience, although if you listen closely to these testimonies, you can hear that a one-off experience has to be repeated like, a lot mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> for that to actually happen and it doesn't take a lot this is where you get like really kind of dramatic testimonies of it automatically change like i was gay and then i wasn't it doesn't take long listening to see how provisional and long term and how equivocal those stories mm -hmm. like what does change actually mean what does one time actually mean that kind of thing and I would say that either way that people came in, there's something that can be extremely relieving about becoming a part of this world. 
because for a lot of people in conservative religious worlds, this is the only kind of quote unquote legitimate way to speak about their sexuality. Hmm. And it's the only way to acknowledge the feelings they're having and have their worlds actually recognize them. Hmm. So that acknowledgement comes at a really steep price which is that you have to immediately renounce this thing that you're just starting to speak. So you're just starting to say it's possible that I might be gay, but you have to renounce it right away. But for some people, just the experience of starting to speak that truth is powerful and can feel really freeing. And I would add, this is part of the reason why recovery from conversion therapy can be so gnarly, so barbed, so complicated, because conversion therapy can really manipulate the kind of liberating experience of acknowledging deeply held truths hmm. and at the same time twisting them getting it deeper and deeper and and manipulating one's like personal experience of coming to a truth about themselves so there's this freedom experience element of it and also that's part of why recovering from conversion therapy can just be so hard Thank you. Well, so then following up on that, Christine, you mentioned some aspects of your uncle who, having gone through therapy to try to change your uncle's sense of gender, that that created numerous long-term consequences. Do you have a sense, and can you talk to what some of these long-lasting effects are for survivors of conversion therapy, even those who eventually come out as proudly queer? How do you see going through conversion therapy tending to impact their lives long-term? Yes, great question. I mean, the scars, they, they remain for a really long time. Suffering from conversion therapy includes suffering from depression and anxiety, suicidal ideations, problems with drugs and alcohol. And we also know that youth who've gone through conversion therapy are more than twice as likely to have attempted suicide. And that is the most conservative number I've seen mm. in terms of estimating just the, the deep cost of being taught essentially to hate yourself, even if a lot of the experience can be at least initially a, can be of belonging, of feeling like, as Lynn says, you get to talk about your gender or sexuality for the first time with a complexity that doesn't adhere to, you know, more conservative gender norms or beliefs about sexuality, that we know that all of that is true. Um, in the film, we also showcase another part of this, kind of, of the scars that conversion therapy leave, which is self-harm. We have showcased a woman, Julie Rogers, who burned herself continuously um, and left literal scars on her body as a way to practice self-harm, which is, of course, you know, related to mental health issues that I've mentioned and suicidality. So that is all a part of the impact of this movement. It's it's really real, dark, upsetting, um, and mm -hmm. it sticks with people for a really long time. That being said, I, I do want to say for anyone listening who is in one of these programs, who is in a community that's sending them a message to be LGBTQ is somehow wrong, it's a sickness or a sin. I also know so many people who've left this world and who are doing really well, who found spiritual communities that accept um, them for exactly who they are, who celebrate being LGBTQ, who fight for LGBTQ rights and dignity. Um, mm -hmm. I found people who've decided that, or I've met people, pardon me, who've decided they don't want religion to be a part of their life in an organized mm -hmm. way, who are really happy as well. That doesn't mean they're not dealing with some of the ongoing consequences, but I actually think some people stay in this world for so long because they are afraid to leave. They're afraid they won't find a sense of belonging or happiness or support for their mental health issues on the other side of this world. It's like mm. another complex part of this world is sometimes people are in a program that is promoting um, ex-LGBTQ beliefs that's also some type of like AA program that's actually really helped them kick a drug mm. or alcohol problem. So mm. there can their, their own mental health support can be wrapped up in ex-LGBTQ language that's also harming people. So... I just want to be clear, too, that people, when they leave, also do really well, especially when they find communities that love and support them, when they find mental health support, where mm -hmm. they can be proudly LGBTQ, and that's not looked at the source of all their mental health problems, but as a beautiful part of themselves that can be explored and talked about, but not pathologized or demonized. The cost of being a part of these programs, it's, it's very real. Well, and that's very helpful to just remind everyone that there are many religious communities that are accepting and affirming and welcoming of LGBTQ people. So 
I'd like to pivot then a little bit and talk about gender, which is an aspect of the film I found really intriguing. So Len, what can you tell us about how these groups have historically viewed proper gender roles and what types of things have they done with participants to instill those ideas about gender as a way to suppress homosexuality and promote heterosexuality? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because on the face of it, ex-gay movements are about not having same-sex sex. But in fact, the sort of theoretical underpinnings of conversion therapy are really more emphasizing of gender than around same-sex activity per se. Hmm. And to talk about that, um, I will introduce you to a woman named Elizabeth Moberly, who is a British psychologist and theologian. And in 1983, she wrote a book called Homosexuality, A New Christian Ethic that became sort of the theoretical basis for counseling to change sexual orientation. And this is her basic idea about how homosexuality works and how it changes. I will emphasize that this is an idea that is not based on empirical studies at all. It's Mm. somebody's interesting, if not so dangerous, Christian reading of Freud. So it's a weird, complicated text, but it's very influential. So in her view, homosexuality is fundamentally a problem of gender. And I'll say that in her view, as you might imagine, gender and biological sex are completely conflated and that sex genders are inherently oppositional. There's male and female, and those are opposite. And her idea is that homosexuality develops when a person fails to have a strong relationship with a parent of the same sex. For whatever reason, the parent could be awful, the kid could be awful, the kid could have perceived something the parent did was awful, but for some reason there's a disruption in the relationship with the parent of the same sex, and because of that, they have not been able to fully imbue their gender as completely as you would if you had a positive relationship with the person of the same sex. And what develops over time, she believes, is a kind of gender lack, a kind of absence of your gender, or which she calls a gender deficit. And people who have these gender deficits because they can't relate to the parent of the same sex have a kind of hunger for the love and approval of people of the same sex. They want to be filled with their gender and they look for ways to do it. And as these people develop, they sexualize that hunger. So they seek that kind of love and approval and gender identity through sexual connections with people of the same sex. And so in this use, same-sex sex, like the sex act, is more of a symptom, and the underlying problem is the gender problem. Hmm. And so the solution, then, in Moberly's view, is to expose this person to a lot of non-sexual connection to people of the same sex and gender, and to expose them to positive experiences with things that are commonly associated with one's sex and gender. And this is where you get the kind of images of like ex-gay women getting lessons in how to put on makeup or how to buy shoes or ex-gay men playing football or Mm -hmm. having in Tanya Erzin's great ethnography what they called straight man night where the ex-gay ministry would bring in a straight man for all the ex-gay men to interview about how to become a straight man. But I will also say it's where you get ex-gay groups where people of the same sex can develop really deep and emotionally intimate relationships with each other. Hmm. Because the process paradoxically is all about men spending time with men and getting close to men and women spending time with women and getting emotionally close with women. And it's where you get, at least in my experience, people who are actually pretty willing to forego sex with people of the same sex for this kind of like homosocial intimacy that's possible Mm -hmm. in this world if you put the sex aside. And believe it or not, this was Moberly's attempt at being kind of more compassionate to queer people, Hmm. saying that homosexuality isn't a sign of like their inherent moral depravity or that they're terrible sinners. As much as homosexuality is a kind of arrested development. So gay people in this view, they aren't sinners, but they're kind of children. She Mm -hmm. actually writes that Christians should think about homosexuality not as sexual sin, but as caring for orphans, like orphan. Hmm. Yeah, it's Mm -hmm. it's kind of wild. But the theory is that once you fill those same-sex hungers legitimately, like at football games, instead of having sex with people, your gender cup will be filled and your erotic attention will turn to the real sexual mystery in this story, according Mm. to these folks, Mm -hmm. which is the opposite sex. So you don't cure the sexuality by looking at sex. You cure, quote-unquote, the gender, and then homosexual desire will emerge. And just to repeat, 
there's no empirical basis of this. And there's a lot to say about how the, these ideas have been implemented, but that's the basic roadmap that most of these ministries in their therapeutic sort of side work on. Yes. Fascinating. I'm so glad to have you here to explain all of this. Building on that, Christine, the documentary opens with someone who had previously identified as a transgender woman, but now identifies according to his assigned birth sex of male and is deeply religious and committed to an evangelical form of Christianity. So how do these organizations, which had typically been called ex-gay organizations, view transgender people? And how do their approaches to quote-unquote treating trans people differ from that of gay people, if at all? Yes, another great question. Um, It's really, you know, an extension, again, of what Lynn was uh, talking about. I expected entering this world that the treatments um, and the talk how to cure someone from being ex-LGBTQ would be about sex. But to Lynn's point exactly, it really is a lot more about gender and enforcing gender norms. I guess what I'm trying to say is, as trans people are becoming a lot more part of our modern day cultural wars, I think that the trans folks that find themselves in ex-LGBTQ ministries are finding that the treatments, quote unquote, that once were used um, for gay and lesbian people easily work, quote unquote, work for trans individuals. So I think the treatments, quote unquote treatments, or Mm -hmm. the kind of religious experiences that people are put through are very similar. It's an encouragement to kind of conform to cis norms. An example that's kind of rolling in my head um, that one survivor shared with me in a group therapy setting that he was in was that men in the group were encouraged to chant what they would say to a woman if they wanted to have sex with her. And these people were coached to eventually shout, if she didn't want, if she doesn't want to have sex with you, you should want to rape her. You should rape her. And I guess I note that horrific example of like a quote unquote therapeutic process. It's completely effed up as an example of this really bastardized view of what we see as the male gender. It's like toxic masculinity turned to like a temperature of 200. And you can see how those ideas would fit easily into processing a trans person that walks into an ex-LGBTQ ministry. Um, The language of current ex-LGBTQ ministries has also evolved. Um, I think there's a reason that you see new movements be called like the changed movement. Um, There's an attempt at a language that is more inclusive, kind of paradoxically, and Mm -hmm. includes more queer identities. At the same time, what that, that's doing is inviting more vulnerable people into the ex-LGBTQ world, which, as we've discussed, is ultimately very damaging. There's just an obsession with gender in this world. Yeah, well then, okay, so bringing these last several points together, there's one particular scene in the film that stands out to me. When the formerly transgender woman that we mentioned, who now identifies as male, leads a gathering at someone's home, I believe in Washington, D.C., with lots of food and then lots of praying. And I have to say, if I had come across this gathering on my own before the praying started, I probably would have thought it was a queer brunch with several openly and happy gay, non-binary and other queer people based on people's dress, bodily comportment, and speech. To me, it did not look like a group of people who would fit a mold of masculine evangelical men and feminine evangelical women, and I had trouble imagining that they would pass in that evangelical world. So I'd like to ask about ex-queer people within broader evangelical communities. Christine, do you have a sense of how well accepted ex-queer people are within traditional evangelical churches and spaces, or do they mainly stay amongst other ex-LGBTQ people and then occasionally get asked to speak in evangelical churches to show proof of God's power, but not ever fully included? In short, it's the latter. And I would add to that, or people stay some version of of closeted, if you want to use that language, in terms Mm. of their Um, sexual identity or gender orientation or relationship to queerness. And I would also just note that I think that the reaction to looking at queer individuals as having some type of sickness 
or sinning in some way still is true in a lot of mainstream Christian communities more generally, not just Mm. in evangelical circles. Um, And that's something I've really noticed in the release of the film. You know, I've talked to pastors or church leaders at, you know, moderate to maybe progressive institutions where they've said, oh my gosh, your film, I can't believe your film is so impactful, so horrible, what what people have gone through. And I say, yes, it is horrible. You know, what would be really powerful is if your organization came out against ex-LGBTQ organizations and people kind of look at me like, well, what? I can't do that. Or someone actually said to me, well, I don't think that our church would ever do that. And I think it's because we've progressed less than we want to in a lot of moderate and conservative religious spaces in terms of how we view queer individuals. So I hate to paint a dark picture, but I guess I say that to say, something I've learned in making this film is I really do think unless um, there's such a deep history of transphobia and homophobia in church culture in the U.S. and abroad that unless a religious organization explicitly comes out either against conversion therapy or the ex-LGBTQ movement or in favor of LGBTQ rights and dignity in some sort of external proactive way, I do think that most reactions to queer folks in churches and religious communities is not acceptance, is uh, an expectation of either silence um, or Mm. participating in a world in which, yeah, you're struggling, be that in your ex-LGBTQ weekly Bible study or with the weekly meeting you have with your pastor or the fact that you attend Freedom March conferences and events once a year, et cetera. Anyone listening that thinks they're a part of a progressive church, I think that's fantastic. And I would say something you can do proactively to help make all of this better and help people avoid the pain that is going through conversion therapy is to be explicit in being Mm. against ex-LGBTQ organizations um, and against conversion therapy. Hmm. Lynn, is there anything you'd like to add about ex-gay people fitting into broader uh, Christian communities? Well, I did want to share a thought that your question actually evoked for me Um, when you were talking about how, you know, is it an ex-gay ministry or is it Queer Sunday Brunch? Who can tell? Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) It reminds me of a question that I had that informed a lot of my research about what exactly was the problem? How, How far could you stretch your activity, your gay queer activity, and still be plausibly considered a member of the ex-gay movement? Mm, So mm -hmm. for example, in Exodus, there was a controversy over two women who lived together in the same house who had been lovers and who announced that they had, were no longer lovers, but still lived in the same house and had an ex-gay ministry in their house. But these are somehow not queer people, and one of them was a board member, which is why it was such a raised issue. And that was something that was acceptable. And amongst the people that I interviewed, having sex was certainly acceptable. Not acceptable like it's okay, but it could be it could be recouped for the purposes of ex-gay ministries because if you had sex and you confessed it and you built a testimony around it and you reinforced the logic of the sinfulness of it, mm. it was fine. People could stay in ex-gay ministries for years and have sexual falls all the time and people could live with that. The one story that I heard of somebody who got kicked out of an ex-gay ministry and asked never to return, who had 48 hours in a live-in ministry to pack up and go, was someone who had never had sex. He had never had sex in his life, but he fell in love with somebody in the ex-gay ministry, didn't tell the person, but through the experience of falling in love, came to feel that maybe homosexuality wasn't a sin. Like, maybe it's fine. Maybe this is not a problem, and maybe it's okay, because this experience of love really changed him. He had 48 hours to pack up and get out in a city that he wasn't familiar with. And it's the only time that I heard of somebody being disciplined in that manner. And your question raises it because it's like the goalpost is even changing from when I did the research, like just how gender nonconforming can you be and Mm -hmm. still plausibly be a member of an ex-gay ministry? How much can you stretch? How alternative can you look? What will evangelical churches tolerate in the name of testimony or in the name of performance? forming a kind of thing of compassion and where will they draw the lines? And I think that's just like an ongoing important mm-hmm. question. That's very helpful to know the line is not actually same gender sex. It's renouncing the idea that it's a sin to love someone of the same gender. 
While uh, we're speaking a little bit about leaders, Christine, I'd like to ask you, so one of the great things I thought about your film is that you interviewed so many former leaders of these ex-gay organizations, and I found watching them very compelling because on the one hand, one could say they are villains in this story who caused quite a bit of damage to people's lives. And on the other hand, the leaders you showcased were themselves people who desperately did not want to be gay or queer and suppress their own feelings and really wanted conversion therapy to work. So they aren't just villains. It did strike me, though, when one of the former leaders says in the film that he feels like he has, quote, blood on his hands. So I'm wondering, what sense do you have of how these former ex-gay leaders that you met who have now renounced that work have been able to live with themselves given the harm that they've caused or how have they tried to atone maybe for their work in these ex-gay organizations? Yes, I think what you are grappling with, the deep complexity of what these ex-LGBTQ leaders represent Yes. To me, that is what I hoped to be the heart of what the film explored because I know it's the heart of the movement and the fuel of the movement and why I mm. believe the movement continues today. And we mm. end the film on this because I really think it is true that as long as homophobia and transphobia continue to exist, something like Exodus, which is, the again, the organization both Lynn and I have mentioned a lot that was before it closed, the largest conversion therapy organization in the world, as long as homophobia and transphobia continues, something like Exodus will continue to emerge. Mm. And I believe in my core for that to be true. And, you know, what I can say is we've seen an increasing number over the decades of, of leaders coming out, renouncing their past work, admitting that they there there's a lot of different ways people say this, but they're same-sex attractions, quote-unquote, never went away, that they changed their behavior, but their feelings never changed, et cetera, et cetera, renouncing their work. We, we see these leaders doing this again and again and again, and yet the movement continues and is actually quite strong. When Exodus closed its doors, one thing that people often mistake is the idea that Exodus was the conversion therapy movement. So when Exodus closed hmm. its doors, what ended was an umbrella organization that had national conferences and an international footprint and was also an umbrella organization for local organizations to refer individuals to local ministries that could help them or a local counselor that could help them, you know, help, of course, mm -hmm. in air quotes. Those local organizations continued. And what we've seen in the past five years with the growth of the internet is an emerging millennial and Gen Z presence of ex-LGBTQ narratives on TikTok, on YouTube, on Instagram, mm. um, coming mm. out of like Bethel Church and these mega churches that have defined a lot of the evangelical landscape in the last five or 10 years. Um, we've seen these ex-LGBTQ narratives continue. So I guess I say all that before answering the question about the individuals in my film, because something that I really wanted people to take away from the film is that this is not a system of a few bad apples running mm -hmm a problematic, harmful movement. Because mm -hmm. if that were true, all of this would be done when, you know, Randy Thomas left the movement and helped close Exodus, for example. Um, he's the ex-leader that you mentioned who talks about having blood in his hands. In terms of what it means to live with what you've done, I think it's when you've gone through the ex-LGBTQ movement as a leader, each individual I spoke to has a different relationship to that grappling, that horror at facing mm -hmm. what you've done. There's a lot of denial that keeps people in the movement for a long time. A lot of, oh, well, that person told me that they know someone that committed suicide, but that's the only story I've heard of that. And those mm -hmm. statistics are written by, you know, the liberal media and I don't believe those and, you know, so on and so forth. When the denial crumbles and you really have to face the statistics we've mentioned, the reality of the mental health issues people have leaving this world, et cetera, People go through mental breakdowns, which we include in the film. Mm. I've seen them continue to live with having to live with what they've done. We, in the film, didn't include much of the actions that people have taken since having left the movement to try to right some of their wrongs, be it support it 
um, state legislation that bans conversion therapy by therapists or mm. um, relationships that people are building one-on-one with survivors to face what they did in mm. kind of a relational way. Relationships people have built with local LGBTQ organizations, activism that people have been a part of, you know, Yvette's been connected with GLAD. People have worked with the Trevor Project. I mean, there, there's a lot that people have done, but something we found in the editing of the film was that for survivors that have gone through this, it kind of mm. doesn't matter what people yeah. have done to atone sure. for what they've done. Um, yeah. So it felt like including those details actually reinforced that one bad apple thing we were trying to avoid. And mm. really what we tried to focus on then in the film was that underlying culture of transphobia and homophobia that gets people into this mess in the first place. As a filmmaker, you know, as someone that kind of holds these different traditions of anthropology and journalism and cinema in the work that I do, I think what I really hope we gave you in Pray Away was a power analysis of why this movement continues. That's where I feel like I can make a contribution and a difference. I think as long as, you know, your church down the street really mishandles that queer kid that comes out one Sunday, you know, during a Bible study and Mm -hmm. either intentionally or unintentionally sends them to an ex-LGBTQ organization because they're looking for help and community and support, this thing's going to continue. So that that's that larger culture, like in our impact campaign for the film that we're hyper focused on, like, how do we create, um, how do we change the culture of how queer people are talked about in religious communities, so that they're just affirmed, accepted and loved for exactly who they are. And uh, I'll say one more thing, which is, in terms of changing that culture, it's so important because the bans that you see happening with conversion therapy are so, so crucial, but it only bans um, conversion therapy with licensed therapists, meaning, you know, a mental Mm. health counselor. So Mm -hmm. if we know that the majority of where people receive some type of conversion therapy counseling or experience is with religious leaders and organizations. So like in the film, Julie Rogers, she went to counseling, but it was with a pastoral leader. Mm -hmm. And that Mm -hmm. organization continues today. So Texas could ban conversion therapy tomorrow, but where Julie and so many people have experienced conversion therapy in Texas, that organization continues today and would be untouched by that law. So we really have to change the culture of how queer individuals are treated in conversion, or in, pardon me, in religious spaces and institutions to end conversion therapy. So that's why that bigger power analysis for me is, is where it's at and is really the center of what we're trying to do with our film after having finished it. Thank you. Those are very helpful, important details. So we haven't talked explicitly about race, and I'm wondering if that is something we should be thinking about when trying to understand these groups. Lynn, do you know, are these groups primarily or have they historically primarily been led by white Christians? Are they racially diverse? What role might you say race plays in the world of ex-LGBTQ ministries? Well, I'll say that when I was doing research on Exodus, again, in the mid-aughts, it was an overwhelmingly white space. There were a couple of token efforts at having people of color speak and give talks, a couple. And there were some people of color who attended, but it was overwhelmingly white. Hmm. But during the course of my research, there was an organization called Witness for the World that was sort of trying to position itself as the Exodus type umbrella organization, like Christine described, in specifically the African American church world. The differences between the two were immediately apparent. I mean, one is just in terms of how race and class play out in America and in American Christianity. The Exodus groups met in these huge mega churches with like lecture halls that sat hundreds of people and seminar rooms with like you know bottled water and like air conditioning and all kinds of stuff like fancy Mm -hmm. big huge spaces the witness for the world conference was in a really small sort of storefront church in a strip mall in a suburb and Mm -hmm. it was the vibe was just completely different It was also different because the bulk of the time of that conference was taken up a lot more with religious service than with sort of workshops on Elizabeth Moberly's model on homosexuality or that kind of thing. Hmm. The locus of emotional cathartic engagement in that space was 100% in religious services where people cried and they 
danced and they spoke in tongues and they had experiences that they would depict as deliverance, that they were much more on the sort of religion end of the spectrum that I described earlier than the therapeutic. So in my general experience, my hypothesis at least, is that the white spaces tend to be more of the therapeutic. On This is an ongoing process. We're going to sit and talk about our feelings for a long, long time. And the spaces that people of color tend to explore these struggles in are more of the religiously oriented, hmm. cathartic deliverance ministry kind of one-time thing that de-emphasizes sitting and talking about your parents and how your same-sex mm. parent, you didn't connect with them or that kind of thing. I will say that from Christine's film, it looks to me like the groups are way more racially diverse than they were when I was studying them. And the film, it seems to me, has actually stimulated some really interesting conversations about race in the ex-gay world. And one I would point listeners to is a recent conversation on the podcast called Outlaws Evidence of the Unseen. It's a podcast by Tim Dillinger and Ray Curentin. These are two gay men. They're married to each other. One is white, one is African-American. They were both raised in conservative Christian communities, and they were professional Christian musicians in the period that I studied, ex-gay hmm. movements, actually. And both of them have experience with ex-gay spaces in both white worlds and African-American worlds, and their conversation and their reflections on it are quite interesting. So hmm. I would point people in that direction if they were interested in hearing more. Great. Thank you. Christine, is there anything you'd like to add about this topic of race and how it fits into the shaping of um, conversion therapy and ex-gay ministries? Well, I just want to um, really affirm Lynn's observation of what we saw in chronicling a current conversion therapy or ex-LGBTQ ministry, the Freedom March, which is, I do think, a, if you want to call it, success of that organization and many other organizations like it that are modern uh, in this world is that they are much more intersectional, frankly. Um, we've talked a lot about that in terms of gender identity and presentation, gender presentation and queer presentation. Um, and I think that includes race as well. And I've seen some really moving panels that they've had about the experience of being a non-white person in a primarily white Christian organization and, and giving people of color the mic talk about that, that experience. But as Lynn said, in the past ex-LGBTQ world, sometimes those you know panels and such that would happen with people of color felt a little maybe tokenizing or a little shallow uh, in terms of that not being reflected in leadership, which back then was much whiter. And now mm -hmm. in these current organizations, the leadership and the boards are much more diverse racially. And we show that in Pray Away with who is in the Freedom March. Um, Jeffrey himself is half Puerto Rican. I think that's part of the reason there is a strong Latin American presence in um, the Freedom March as an organization. It's a tricky thing, of course, to celebrate the idea of the ex-LGBTQ movement right. becoming more inclusive when it comes to race because another way to look at that is that that becomes a way in which to get more people involved mm -hmm. in ex-LGBTQ mm -hmm. ministries. I found in talking about the film that the language we use to talk about diversity as something to celebrate and inclusivity and equity work to celebrate just doesn't translate that well to when you're talking about that progress in the ex-LGBTQ world because the world is so damaging. So, um, but that being said, it has become a much more racially diverse world. So for our last question, I'd like to ask you about the possibilities to bring an end to all of this. Conversion therapy, as has been mentioned, has been outlawed in some places. Uh, Lynn, what strategies have activists used to outlaw conversion therapy? And what is preventing this from becoming illegal everywhere in the United States? And are there things that people listening to our conversation today can do that can help put an end to these organizations and conversion therapy? Yeah, it's a really important question. There's at least kind of four strands or strategic inroads into working on conversion therapy and trying to change both the legal status of conversion therapy, but also the cultural spaces that make conversion therapy a plausible practice. In terms of the legal route, which is one route that people take, this is efforts to outlaw this practice entirely. Mm -hmm. And Christine spoke to some of this. Mm -hmm. um, the effort is to make it illegal. In the United States, the focus tends to be on making it illegal to practice it with minors. In other countries like 
New Zealand and Canada, those efforts are sort of more all-encompassing. They're efforts at banning the practice altogether. And there's been some success on sort of the local level and some municipal levels. The higher you go up state level, the harder it is to implement those things. So it's harder on the state level and then very difficult on the federal level. And it has the limitations that Christine mentioned, which is that it only involves people who are licensed mental health professionals, and a lot of these folks aren't. And the practice of conversion therapy in religion context provides a pretty big legal shield. So that's a problem. But for mm. people who are interested in that kind of thing, the National Center for Lesbian Rights, they have a campaign called Born Perfect, which is an effort at trying mm. to organize the sort of legal strand of this movement. Another which is related is professional interventions, uh, interventions with um, places that license or train mental health people. At this point in the United States, all of the major mental health organizations, including the American Psychiatric Association, the National Association of Social Workers, all of those groups have made statements against the practice. And people who have been engaged in therapy with professionally licensed mental health workers are doing activism in terms of reporting folks like that, trying to change licensure requirements, that kind of thing. And globally, activists in countries that still criminalize same-sex activity are really honing in on the sort of professional and state health mm. level interventions, trying to make the argument that this is a health issue and not a moral issue, and that those are the bodies to which mm. accountability for these practices need to happen. Mm -hmm. A third strand also Christine spoke to are sort of the faith-based campaigns, and these are campaigns to try and change religious communities, religious cultures that would make them inhospitable places for conversion therapy. And I will add, regardless of whether or not these places call themselves LGBTQ affirmative or not. So this kind of activism is happening in places that call themselves queer affirming and in places that don't. An example of this is the Good Fruit Project, which is a collaboration of the Trevor Project, um, which focuses on stopping LGBT suicide, and the Q Christian Fellowship, which takes a very sort of expansive approach to what it means to be an out queer person in Christian spaces. And they're trying to train faith communities so that they can recognize even elements of conversion therapy. They can recognize the language, they can recognize the discourse, they can recognize the practice, they can understand the kind of harms that it does, and they can pledge not to practice it in any form. And then in Australia, for example, activists like Dr. Timothy Jones are developing materials on best practices for pastoral care. So they're taking this sort of mainline therapeutic pastoral tradition and trying to insert educational materials and training materials on how to do appropriate pastoral care with LGBTQ people, again, regardless of whether or not it's affirming or not. But perhaps the most important work in the fourth strand that I want to talk about is work by and with survivors and survivors of these ministries who are taking a kind of nothing about us without us approach to organizing and are trying to make changes on the basis of their experience. They're training mental health workers who are working with survivors hmm. to help them understand what they're seeing, like what the distortions of mental health counseling that people who have been through reparative therapy specifically have gone through mm -hmm. in order to understand how to undo it because it can be a tricky mirror it can be a weird like evil twin of discourse mental health you know positive mm -hmm. affirming mm -hmm. actually healing mental health discourse and the kind of language used in conversion therapy and mental health practitioners need to be schooled in that to understand the slipperiness of even the language they use or how a therapy, a therapy room might be triggering that kind of thing. And then folks in Australia, for example, are organizing, there's a group called the Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity Change Efforts Survivors. Their acronym is S-O-G-I-C-E. I don't know how to pronounce that, I'm sad to say. But they have developed a statement and they're really trying to organize as survivors, trying to hold people accountable at all different levels. Thank you. So, Christine, last word on any or all of this. Anything you'd like to add? Well, so many of the organizations that Lynn mentioned we're partnering with on Pray Away in mm. our uh, impact campaign and also list as a resource on our website. So if you go to prayawayfilm.com and then go to resources, if you're interested in getting involved, basically every organization, save a few international organizations that Lynn mentioned, they're all on our website, and I really encourage people to take a peek there. We also have educational resources on that resource tab that our team created. Mm -hmm. uh, our previous impact producer, 
on the project, Miles Markham, who's just a really special organizer when it comes to um, LGBTQ rights and dignity, um, fighting for that in evangelical spaces, who also worked on Good Fruit Project with the Trevor Project, which Lynn mentioned. Um, He was instrumental in creating the educational resources that we have on our website that compare really nicely with a screening that you might wanna have in a local community of yours with Pray Away. And just the last thing I'll say is, Again, I really do believe in my heart of hearts that a culture change is ultimately what we need to end this practice. So I would just say if you're feeling a little lost in terms of what to do, if you want to make a bit of a difference, Mm. you know, I think analysis paralysis is often a problem (laughs) when it comes to making change. And we've talked about a lot of ways to do it. Just don't forget who your friends are, who your family is, who your next door neighbor is that you might want to strike up a conversation about all of this with. Maybe you want to point them to Pray Away and to check it out on Netflix. I'm thinking about a conversation I had with someone I went to high school with who's now a pastor in early days of research for this film. And I asked him, if a kid came out as gay in your congregation, what would you do? What would you say to him? And he was working at a Baptist church that considered itself relatively progressive. He'd gone to what is a considered one of the most progressive seminaries. And he said, you know, I don't know. And I thought, ooh, that is really scary because that kid and family are now a Google search away from finding the Freedom March and thinking they're finding help. That type of person who's in your community, they need one resource, you know, they need um, Q Christian Fellowship to point that kid to. And that could change everything. So just don't discount the people immediately in your world who might be willing to change their mind, read about a resource, and that can make a huge difference um, in a way that you'll never totally be able to, to grasp in terms of ending conversion therapy, both the practice and the movement. Hmm. Well, thank you for that. And thank you both for your important work and for this conversation. That is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guests, Christine Stalakis and Lynn Gerber. You can stream Christine's film, Pray Away, on Netflix now, and you can purchase Lynn's book, Seeking the Straight and Narrow, at your preferred online retailer. And you can find several articles about religion and LGBTQ people in The Revealer at therevealer.org. I'm Brett Crutch. I hope you'll join us for our next episode next month, we'll be discussing the place of religion in battles over pornography. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Cameron Anderson. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org.